Week spokesperson who supported the employment of women as streetcar conductors and mail carriers, declaring that the employment of women in such laborious work would be little short of criminal. The council especially condemned the entrance of married women, otherwise supported by their husband, into industry. Beneath the above pledge by the executive council was a similar one that, together with the national and international unions, the council would organize and protect the interests of colored workers. The latter pledge was never kept. When World War I came to an end on November 11, 1918, the AFL had done nothing but discuss the problems created by the influx of black workers into industry and adopt resolutions without creating any effective mechanism, any effective means to put them into operation. During the war, the national and local unions had grown rapidly, enrolling hundreds of thousands of new members, some even tripled in size. Few of these new members were black. The Women's Trade Union League, which had made very little effort to organize black women before World War I, tried to make up for its past neglect as black women now replaced many white women who moved into better-paying defense jobs from the traditional women's trades. Articles and editorials in Life and Labor demanded equal opportunity and equal treatment for black females. Mildred Rankin, a black social worker, was appointed to direct a national office of colored women workers, but it all added up to very little. One reason was that the effort to unionize black women was inadequately supported because of financial problems, but the major obstacle was the same as that confronting black men, the racism of the AFL and most affiliated unions. With several colored organizers, Rankin went to the Berkeley and Portsmouth area in Virginia to try to organize black women there, most of whom were cooks, day workers, home laundresses, nursemaids, but the rebuffs that black male workers in the area were receiving from the AFL convinced her that the plan would get nowhere. She abandoned the idea. She also evidently abandoned a WTUL plan to form a colored women's trade union league. It was too late for a segregated movement, she informed Margaret Dreyer Robbins. An effort by socially-minded class black women to organize and protect black working women led to the formation of the Women's Wage Earners Association with Jeanette Carter as president, Julia Coleman as secretary, and Mary Church Terrell, one of the foremost black women of the 20th century America, as treasurer. The association centered in the nation's capital sought to unite black working women with its main object to better than ours and the housing and wage-earning conditions of our women in all lines of work, recognizing that it would be difficult to bring such women into existing trade unions, the association hoped to achieve the goal by lectures that would show them how to help themselves while the organization was seeking to persuade the unions to change their practices. One branch was 600 members strong. 300 of them were tobacco stimmers employed by the America Cigar Company, and they demand an increase in wages from 70 cents to $1.50 per day and recognition of the association as their bargaining agent. When the company rejected the demands, the black women struck on September 5, 1917. The Norfolk 
journal and guide endorsed the walkout and argued in an editorial pointing out approximate weekly cost of house rent being $1, fuel being $0.75, clothing $1, insurance $0.25, church dues $0.25, lodge dues $0.25, and incidentals $0.25 for a total of $7.25 a week. At $1.25 a day, the women would earn $6.87 a week, as the working time at the factory is five and a half days. Simultaneously, the strike of the tobacco stimmers, the domestic servants, including cooks, maids, waitresses, and laundresses, decide to ask for a minimum wage of a dollar per day with some modifications in working time. C.G. Kizer, chief of the Norfolk Police Department, is also beginning to take a hand in the labor situation. He has detailed a special squad of plainclothesmen for this duty. The squad is instructed to prevent loafing among the colored men and women. All industrial slackers reported by them will find themselves in the position of defendants before the police justice. The enraged journal and guide editorialized the police department was not sent out to round up and arrest slackers and loafers, the 3,000 white men who quit working in the Navy Yard because an increase in wage was denied them. No government sleuths and legal sharps were sent down to pry into the charter provisions of the union to which the men belong. The women are asking for bread. Why give them stone? The appeal fell on deaf ears. The strikers were arrested as slackers, while efforts to obtain support from the white trade unions of the city brought no response. By the first week of November, not only were the strikes broken, but the Norfolk branch of the Women Wage Earners Association had disappeared. During the last months of 1917, streetcar managers in the larger Urban centers began to explore the possibility of recruiting women workers to fill vacancies on the applicant lists for the car crews, where women had not previously been employed, and to employ women as extras to replace motormen and conductors who volunteered or were drafted. Rumors of the impending employment of women brought an immediate protest from the organized workers of the industry, who were almost exclusively male. Slightly more than half of the workers in urban transportation were organized, and the major collective bargaining agent was the Amalgamated Association of Street and Railway Employees, whose president was William Mohan. The only other organized workers were those represented by company unions or employee representational plans. Criticized for violating its own commitment to the government, the Amalgamated Executive Board on August 1918 recommended that women be hired and accepted by the locals if it is necessary during the period of the war. The board also established a number of restrictions to be followed where women were employed during the emergency. Female workers were to enter employment on the same basis as men, except female workers were to take their places at the bottom of the extra seniority list, giving them the least seniority in the workforce. Women were to receive the same wages as men and enjoy the same working conditions. Where they were employed in a closed or union shop, they were to be given apprentice permits, which allowed them to work for 90 days without belonging to the union. 
The board also ruled that when women do enter the service, they shall become members of the organization, being entitled to the same protection, benefits, and conditions that men are entitled to, coming under the working conditions and provisions of the agreement in the same manner. But of all the unions that on the service followed the labor policy of the Wilson administration, the Amalgamated Association pursued the most treacherous policy. Loco simply disregarded the instructions of the executive board and did so with impunity. Indeed, the executive board defended them. Moreover, the Amalgamated Association even conducted a campaign against women conductors or conductorettes, as they called themselves. In cities where it did not have collective bargaining agreements, in this campaign against conductorettes, the Amalgamated Association received the cooperation of government agencies. James Lynch, member of the New York State Industrial Commission, claimed that the employment of female conductors on New York City's streetcars would lead to violence, and asked, how do you think a man will feel who, unable to find a job, boards a car and is obliged to hand his nickel to a woman? That is the problem in a nutshell. The Department of Labor cooperated with the Amalgamated Association by complying with its request to send an investigator to stay the use of conductorettes on New York City streetcars. The union then widely publicized the investigator's findings that the operation of the streetcars is one of the last occupations which women should be hired or forced into. The Labor Department's report admitted that the Women conductors in New York City, about 30% of the conductors employed by New York Railway Company and 21.7% by the Brooklyn Rapid Transit Company, were receiving the same wages as men. Since the Labor Department investigation did not result in the dismissal of New York City conductorettes, the union mixed publicized reports that the women were engaging in gross immorality in the car barns at the end of their runs and were frequenting nearby saloons returning to their cars intoxicated. The investigator found the women conductors to be working earnestly and honestly in their new occupations to make a living. Had the Amalgamated Association and the New York Trade Unionists spent an equal amount of time and money unionizing the women, the result might have been better for everyone concerned except, of course, the transit companies. It was the controversies over the women conductors in Detroit, Kansas City, and Cleveland, especially in Cleveland, that aroused the widest attention. At the beginning of August 1918, the U.S. Employment Service announced a shortage of 36,000 skilled workers for Northern Ohio. The Cleveland Street Railway Company hired 190 women conductors at the end of the month, based on an estimated shortage. The company's official explanation was that there were not sufficient male workers to fill the vacancies, and that the war emergency required the hiring of women. The women were given a short period of training and placed on the seniority list as extras to fill car crews as needed. The employment of the women conductors was immediately challenged by the male membership of Local 268 of the Amalgamated Association. The union disputed the company's claim that male workers were unavailable and threatened to strike unless the women were dismissed. 
However, it agreed to a compromise under which the women would be allowed to continue the job while the Department of Labor investigated the alleged shortage of male workers in the Cleveland area. The Labor Department sent Henry Deal Mann and Margaret Rusinowski to Cleveland to confer with the company and Local 268 to determine the validity of the company's decision to hire women workers. After reviewing the hiring records and the records of its employment agencies, the investigators reported that there was no real shortage of male workers. It conceded that the turnover rate of the CSR's workforce was high and that the dismissal of the women would cause a lowering of standards since their replacements would not be of a high caliber. Nevertheless, the report concluded that the labor situation in Cleveland did not warrant the employment of the women. It recommended that they be dismissed and their places filled by male workers. Originally, the two investigators recommended that the women conductors be retained for the time being since their release would have crippled an already inadequate transportation system. But three weeks later, on September 21st, they reversed themselves and recommend termination of the conductorettes by November 1st, a reversal that the Cleveland News termed a minor mystery. The most logical explanation for the termination order, writes Ronald Benson in a study of the Cleveland controversy, is that the union convinced the Department of Labor that the continued appeasement of the women on the streetcars would lead to a serious disruption of service, possibly a citywide walkout by the car men. The report issued by the Department of Labor was immediately challenged by the women themselves. At a mass meeting of all the women workers on the cars, the Association of Women Street Railway Employees was organized and Laura Prince elected president. An executive committee was chosen to speak for the women and to formulate a strategy to defend their jobs. The association appealed to Secretary of Labor William Wilson to prevent their dismissal on the grounds that they are responding to the government's call for women to seek employment in essential occupations. The women sought a hearing before the National War Labor Board. The company had engaged the women to work and had clearly stipulated that the only grounds for their dismissal were incompetency, insubordination, or other unsatisfactory service. But the charge brought against them by Local 268 was merely that they were women. The company had publicly acknowledged that they were satisfactorily fulfilling their duties. The women also charged that their rights had been violated by the Department of Labor's recommendation for dismissal especially their constitutional right to work. The most wrinkling aspect of the whole controversy they insisted was the refusal of Local 268 to admit them to the union, which would have given them protection against arbitrary dismissal. But the union's approach to their request to join was that they had disregarded the contract between Local 268 and the company under which no women could be employed, and that they had no right either to the job or to union membership. The board recommended that the company hire no more women for the car crews and that all the women conductors be dismissed within 30 days. This was by order of the War Labor Board restraining the company from dismissing the women until their report was completed. On December 1st, the company was directed to remove and displace the women that are now in its service as rapidly 
as possible. The board upheld the company's argument that the women had been hired under the necessity clause, but stated that since the armistice of November 11th, the emergency had ceased to exist. To moderate the anticipated outcry from the suffrage and women's trade union forces, the board issued an addendum to its ruling the next day, urging President Stanley to try to find jobs elsewhere in the company for the women dismissed from the car crews. The kind of jobs were not specified so that the women were suddenly confronted with the threat of unemployment. The NWTUL, the Feminists and the Conductorettes Association all rejected the War Labor Board's recommendation, which they refused to consider binding. On December 21st, the women filed a petition for a new hearing, charging that the board had heard only one major witness, the mayor of Cleveland, and had refused to meet with the women or their representatives. Its decision, the Conductorettes Association argued, affirmed the narrowest anti-female viewpoint in trade union circles, and if not reversed, would threaten all the gains made by women workers during the war. The 1924 report on the conductorettes issued by the Women's Bureau drew special attention to this aspect of the ruling. It seemed to be a very dangerous precedent to deny the women the right to work on any occupation for no other reason that their dismissal was demanded by the men and without giving the women a hearing so that they might present their case. The board took the petition under advisement, agreed to set a date for a rehearing early in March 1919, and assured the women that they would be permitted to appear to argue their case. The company agreed not to dismiss the women until March 1st, despite pressure from Local 268. The Conductorettes Association then retained as its counsel Frank Welsh, one of the most respected labor lawyers in the country. Their attorney, Welsh, agreed to plead the case only if the women had the matter fully prepared. Laura Prince of the Conductorettes and Rose Moriarty office manager and secretary-treasurer of the Champion Stove Company of Cleveland, assumed the major response for preparing the case in cooperation with the Reconstruction Committee of the NWTUL. Well, 100,000 members of the Women's Suffrage Hubs of Cleveland pledged their full support for the struggle to make America safe for working women. Joining the defense were Margaret Deaver Robbins, Ethel Smith, M.S. Hagen and Elizabeth Kreisman of the NWTUL, Mary Anderson and Mary Van Beek of the Women in Industry Service, and Ann Howard Shaw of the National American Women's Suffrage Association. John Fitzpatrick, the president of the Chicago Federation of Labor, warned Walsh that the unions in Cleveland were very hostile to the news. Fitzpatrick was a longtime champion of women workers. Both he and Walsh had recent evidence of the contributions that working women could make to organized labor. Both had been associated with the significant wartime strike in the Chicago stockyards. Fitzpatrick, as a member of the union's organizing committee and Walsh as a union's legal representative, and they had seen the importance of recruiting women into the organizing drive. The case emphasized the issues raised in the months during which the women had struggled to keep their jobs in the conductorettes. One, they were efficient and capable, documented by the company's personal records. 
Two, the women had tried to join the union, Local 268, which would have given them protection against arbitrary dismissal, but the union had refused to admit them. Three, the work of the conductors was primarily a clerical job at which they were seated, and it was therefore not a strenuous or hazardous occupation for women. Four, the real reason for the dismissal was the simple fact that they were women and that the male members of the union were prejudiced against them. Five, there were enough vacancies on the cars of the Cleveland Street Railway to accommodate both the women and the returning veterans so that there was no economic reason for dismissing them. Six, Local 268 had violated the War Labor's Board's interlocutory order by striking against the women. So the union was in violation of the board's ruling and seven, the armistice did not end the jurisdiction of the WLB for the Labor Department's order to replace the women had been appealed before November 1918, and the board was within its competency in ordering the companies to retain the women on the cars. The 64 women who had been fired after March 1st were ordered to be rehired and their seniority rights and all benefits restored. They were not to be removed for any reason other than just cause and then only on an individual basis. The board based its reversal order on two major considerations. First, the women's case had not been presented when the original order was issued and therefore they had been denied a fair and impartial hearing. Secondly, the company had sufficient vacancies to keep the women conductors and still hire male workers returning from the military service. Since the women had accepted the jobs in good faith, every effort should be made to retain them. The victory, however, proved to be of little consequence. Or as a New York Times headline phrased it, women's victory vain. Local 268 simply refused to accept the reinstatement order and President Stanley of the CSR announced that the War Labor Board's new ruling could not be recognized by the company. The women would not be rehired. The women would not be rehired and the union's objections to women on the car crews would stand. The company could not afford another strike. A controversy involving conductorettes on the Detroit United Railway ended in a small victory for the women. The union agreement with the company permitted the company to accept any person who seemed fit who would then receive a work permit from the union. If after 90 days of service the company found the applicant competent and no reasonable objection existed against his membership, he was admitted to the union. In accepting the employment of women under the necessity clause principle, the Detroit local of the amalgamated agreed to give conductorates permit cards, but when after the 90-day period they asked for admission into the union, they were refused. The union, the board ruled, must be content with the continued employment of the women now with the company for as long as they wish to remain and must issue permits to those who ready to work as conductorates. Since the union did not challenge the board's decision, the Detroit conductorates were able to work for as long as they wished to, even though the union never did issue the work permits. Only in Kansas City were the conductorates successful. At first, the Kansas City local also threatened to strike if women were employed, but then it reversed itself, convinced that the only useful route for both 
men and women, was through labor, solidarity, and equal treatment. The union men welcomed the women into the local and insisted that the guaranteed minimum pay of the women be raised to equal the guaranteed wage of men. When the Kansas City Railway Company refused to exceed, the conductorate supported by the men conductors appealed to the War Labor Board. The board directed that women employees shall receive equal pay for the same work, and the guaranteed minimum for women shall be increased from $60 to $75 per month, as now obtains in the case of men. The board's decision, Valerie Connor observes, reflected the harmony between the sexes by granting absolute wage equality in uncompromising and direct language which the board had never used before and would not use again. It was Cleveland, however, not Kansas City, that set the pattern for the conductorates. President Mohan of the Amalgamated Association made this quite clear in a letter to the Women's Bureau on May 13, 1920. The dispute that was raised by our organization was against women as conductors on surface and trolley cars. Our organization took the position that it was no fit place for a woman to work and has decided against them. Yet the evidence reveals that relationship between men and women workers during the war varied considerably from place to place and union to union. Where women were welcomed the, into the unions, they accepted the invitation gladly and made important contributions to advancing the interests of both themselves and of men workers, and together they obtained better working conditions. Where they were confronted by union opposition, women defended their own special interests. In general, the war gave many women their first contact with highly organized militant male workers. Too often, the opposition of these male workers and their led to the women to consider trade unionism and sex discrimination as synonymous. But for many, the contact taught them the advantages of trade union protection and they learned from their association with progressive-minded male unionists the value of being organized into strong collective bargaining unions. By 1920, trade union membership was 8% female and 6.9% of all working women were organized, a five-fold increase in a decade. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcasts, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening.